Today in our series going through end times anxiety, we are going to explore the seven churches of the book of Revelation. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Revelation chapter 1, and we're just going to spend a lot of time in Revelation uh, 1, 2, and 3 today as we go through this. We're going to talk about the cycle of the church. The seven churches in the book of Revelation are explained through chapters 2 and 3, and what you need to understand about them is that they were seven actual churches with actual challenges that were addressed by Jesus Christ. But why these seven? There were other churches in the region, as you look at a map, as you even look at uh, Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, you can see that there were other churches that we can see in the region, like Colossae, which is the uh, book of Colossians that the Apostle Paul wrote to that group. Also, Galatia was in Asia Minor. There were other very significant churches, Hierapolis. Um, many churches were in that region, and for some reason, God chose for these seven to be addressed, and these weren't more notable. They weren't more significant. They were just the seven that were chosen to be addressed by Jesus personally. Because you have to think, these other churches, they had problems going on. They had challenges of their own. And so these seven are brought to the forefront to address actual challenges that they were dealing with. And Jesus uh, instructed John to write his words down to send this letter to these seven churches. And they were also reading each other's letters too because it was just one big letter. They weren't seven separate letters. They were reading the entire book of Revelation. So they were reading about one another as well. But could you imagine hearing from John, the disciple Jesus loved, now having an encounter with the glorified Christ as he's revealing himself and his plans and his concerns and his thoughts and his warnings to John and then John sends this letter out, and here you are, a first century Christian, and you get a letter from John that John says, Jesus wrote this and wanted me to write this to tell you these things. It would be extremely powerful. As we examine this literal and symbolic meaning of these prophetic texts, we can see both a literal and symbolic and future-speaking prophetic meaning to what Jesus was doing with these seven churches. He was speaking directly to them, and also these messages apply to the church today because what we're going to find is the cycle of these churches is the cycle of the church, the body of Christ, and challenges that we deal with in our day and age, and the same answer the same fix, the same solution to those seven actual churches that were dealing with those actual problems is still the same solution for you and I today. So no matter where we find ourselves in the cycle of the system of Babylon that is driven by the Antichrist, we need to recognize what has happened is happening and it will happen again. As Ecclesiastes says, there is nothing new under the sun. So through this text, we're going to see what, would have, uh, what this would have meant to the original hearers, the original recipients, and what it means to us today. So remember something. In prophetic writings, numbers have significant meaning. So there are seven churches. Remember, we asked the question, why these seven? Well, these were the seven that Jesus wanted to highlight, and also the seven that communicate to us today, because that seven is the number of completion. That number is the seven of wholeness. And so we understand that as this was a letter directed to those churches, it's also a letter directed 
to the big C church, the universal church. And it will always be a message both to those churches of their day and to us today as well. So as we look at that, we want to start off in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9 through 11 when Jesus gives these instructions to John. Revelation 1 and verse 9 through 11 says this, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So here are those seven churches that Jesus tells John in this vision when he's in the Spirit that he has specific messages for them. And then these things not only began to circulate amongst these seven churches, but these messages were circulated to the church at large, as we can obviously see it still being circulated to this very day. So it does have prophetic meaning and relevance for us today. So let's dive into this and let's examine each one of these churches. Let's look at what Jesus said to them and what that would have meant to them. And then let's look at what it means to us today. So let's look at Revelation chapter 2 and go through verse 1 through 7. I know we touched on two of those churches last week in the message, but we're going to revisit those churches as we go through all seven. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1 says this, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. You found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from it, its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. There's so much in this. And, and as we read this, the main thing that we can kind of pull out of that is this idea that doing good things doesn't replace your love for God. We see that they face some of the same challenges that we face today. That we think that if we get caught up doing a bunch of good things, we get involved in things that make us feel good or make us feel spiritual, that we're doing it maybe even in the name of God, that we can begin to put our trust and our hope and our focus in those things. But doing good things does not replace your relationship with Him, your awe of Him, your worship of God. Can you imagine? Here's this church in Ephesus, a very influential area. It would be compared to like the New York City of our day. It's a huge, thriving metropolis that has huge shops and stores, and it is a great place of commerce. And here you are in the church, and you're living amongst this huge city and the hustle and bustle, and, and, and you're surrounded by all sorts of pressures. You're surrounded by the pressures of worshiping the emperor. 
because every one of the provinces of Rome, they would deify the emperor, build a temple to the emperor, as well as to the pantheon of all of their Greek, God, Greek gods, like, like Zeus and uh, all of the other uh, gods of the pantheon in Greek mythology that we still read about today. Those temples, some of their ruins still exist, and you can actually see how these places were thriving, huge cities. And the temple to the, uh, to, the, to the Caesar or to the emperor would be built on the highest place, at the highest point in the city of every one of these provinces. So that would be the main thing you would see. And then there would be a huge statue of the emperor that would be built to whoever the emperor was of that day. In John's day, it was the emperor Domitian, who was a great persecutor of the church, even more intense of a persecutor of God's church than the evil emperor Nero, who burned down the city of Rome and then blamed the Christians. Domitian was more wicked than that. Uh, one of the wicked things that Nero was famous for is that he would actually take the Christians and he would wrap their bodies up in uh, all sorts of things to bind them, and he would cover them in oil, put them up on a platform, set them on fire, and have a dinner party with those human candles burning. And he would celebrate that and invite friends and, and, and dignitaries to come, and they were called Roman candles. They would be burning Christians to light their parties. That is wicked. And Nero did this regularly. And then to take Domitian and say there's something more wicked than that, this was a difficult time to be a Christian. And also you need to understand that in those Greek provinces were, uh, were existing Jewish synagogues because they tolerated the Jews. They tolerated um, other forms of worship, not just Judaism, as long as those forms of worship didn't have nicer temples than the ones dedicated to their gods, especially the emperor, because the emperor was above all, even Zeus himself, because they would build these statues, and the statue of the emperor would be held up by the statues of their Greek gods. So they put him above all else, which also helps gives us context in Ephesus because the book of Ephesians chapter 6, which is written to the church in Ephesus, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers of darkness and rulers in high places. And so these high places, these places of, of, of deifying a, a human emperor to be above all of their other gods, as long as you didn't interrupt their thing, they wouldn't really pay you too much attention. But here, Paul is trying to illustrate to the Ephesians, hey, listen, the real war is a spiritual war, and actually Jesus is above all of those, even the ruler of that highest place in Ephesus. And so you've got Christians in the middle of this. You've got Jews in the middle of this. You have all of these social pressures in the middle of this. And the Ephesians were kind of caught under the pressure of just trying to kind of go under the radar maybe. Maybe to just be do-gooders of their day. And they thought if we're just do-gooders, we can just fly under the radar. And they'd been just doing enough good to still feel like they were Christian because they didn't want to deal with the pressures of the Jews. They didn't want to deal with the pressure of the Romans. They didn't want to deal with all of the social anxieties of their day. So they just wanted to be known as do-gooders. And they thought we could do this in the name of Jesus and still be do-gooders. And maybe people would think better about what we're doing. And he says, you're doing good. 
And, and when there's false prophets, like people, you're even standing up against false prophets. You're actually calling them out. And he mentions the Nicolaitans. We don't know a ton about the Nicolaitans, but what we do know is that they were spreading a false gospel. And he said, you hate their works. I, I hate the works of the Nicolaitans too. So you're doing things that look like someone who's following Christ should do, but you've forgotten the main thing that makes a Christ follower a Christ follower. And that's the love you had at first. You've lost your love. You're so busy compromising, you've lost your love. You, you, you're, you're replacing your love for God with doing good works because really your goal is to be accepted by society. You don't want to be ostracized. You don't want to be kicked out of the group. If, if you were a Jew, they kept your name in a registry. Um, just like in Hitler's Germany, they would be identified with the, uh, with the Star of David. Same kind of deal. They keep your name in a registry. And if you were someone who was kicked out of the Jewish society because you were a follower of Christ and you believed he was Messiah, they would say you're a blasphemer, you're kicked out of the society, they would blot your name out of the book. And then if your name wasn't in the book when it was time to go worship in the synagogue, the Romans would wonder, why are you out here wandering around the street? All the Jews are in the synagogue and you're a Jew. And if they would find out your name was blotted out, then they would say, are you one of those Christians? And then they would say, do you align with Rome? Are you in allegiance with the emperor? And if the answer was no, then you would most likely be imprisoned or killed. They would pressure you to recant your faith. And in the middle of that, the church in Ephesus, the Ephesians are going, let's just do good stuff. That's what we need to be about. Let's just do good stuff. And church, we could do the same thing. We're facing a lot of pressures in our world that would want us to conform to the pattern of this world. We're facing a lot of things that would want to get us to change our message and change our true hope in Christ that we have by compromising and trying to attack things the way that the world attacks things, by just being do-gooders. And in the process, we run the risk of forgetting to love God. What was the answer for the people in Ephesus who were facing these pressures. Jesus told them explicitly to repent. That word repent means to turn. To turn away from what they're currently putting their hope and trust in. Not to turn away from doing good. He, he liked that they did good, but they missed the more important thing. He wanted them rather than focusing on the good that they were doing to return to loving God, to putting their hope and their rest and their trust in Him and delighting in Christ to returning to that passion and fervor that they had just being people who had been redeemed and following him and loving him, not just being people who were just doing a bunch of good because doing good things doesn't replace your love for God. Let's read about the next church, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life, I know your tribulations, your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Wow. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is a powerful text here to this church. There's no criticism of this church. There is nothing that he's telling them to repent of. Instead, he's saying, you guys are about to be persecuted. You've been doing good. He's letting them know. Like you, 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 you're, you've, been, you've been in poverty. 
Why were they in poverty? Because they were social outcasts of their day. As a matter of fact, even in Ephesus and in other places, you couldn't even go into the marketplace unless you would first offer on an altar a small offering of incense to the emperor. You would just grab a pinch of incense and toss it into the air and say something like hail to the emperor or something like that. And that would be your acceptance to be able to go and to do business in the marketplace. And those altars are still uh, in existence in those ruins in all of these different places that we're talking about. And you can see where at all the entrance places, you just got to do something to, if you had to pay a fee, I don't know, but whatever you had to do, you had to enter into the marketplace by saying you were aligned with Rome, saying you were aligned with the deified Caesar, the emperor, and here you are, you're ostracized, man. It, it would be the equivalent of if before you went to the mall or to uh, Target or Walmart, you would have to uh, give your allegiance to some world ruler or, or, or worship the president of the United States or whatever the case may be and say, say uh, you know, hail to the chief and, and, and offer some sort of incense as an offering to say yes, I, and then you're, you're then accepted because you've aligned with that nation and that society and with the ruler of that day we would think that's really strange. And, and for a Christian, they're conflicted because they need stuff. They want to go shopping. They want to be a part of what's happening in their community. But they, they're faced with a choice, a very hard choice. Do I compromise and, you know, just kind of half-heartedly, like, I don't really mean it, but yay, emperor, you know, and then just kind of walk in and, and then I go buy my stuff, like, is that okay? Like, like, like I, don't, I don't know how to navigate this, and so they're ostracized. They have to choose to align with Christ instead of compromise. And then they've got their own people, the people who are supposed to be followers of God, the keepers of the law, the, the uh, descendants of Abraham, the Jews, and you've got these Jewish people who... Are, are gathering together, and, and, and culturally, if you were a, a Jew who was also a Christian, you still want to be a part. Those are, those are my people. That, that's my group. That's my nation. That's my history, my rich history. Those are, those are my Jewish brothers and sisters, and they're like, oh, you're one of those Christ followers? Your name is blotted out of the book. You can't enter. Not only would they blot your name out of the book, but they would lock the door on you to where you couldn't even go into the synagogue. You couldn't even enter in and, and read the scrolls of the Old Testament or hear the Old Testament read. You, you couldn't fellowship with them at all. You were kicked out of their social circles. circles. You didn't get invited um, to, 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 to little Benjamin's birthday party, right? Your, your kids and their kids weren't playing together anymore. They weren't nice to you. They, they blacklisted you. As a matter of fact, the Jehovah's Witness cult does the same thing in our modern day. If you stand for Christ and, and, and you, you, you defect from the ways of the Jehovah's Witness, you are blacklisted. They won't do business with you. They won't interact with you. Nothing. Um, sometimes when they knock on my door, I wish I was blacklisted from Je Jehovah's... Anyways, so that's <laughs> kind of the same idea. But what if that was all you knew? What if those were your people? What if that's how you grew up and now... I can't go out and do business. I'm, if I get caught, my life is on the line, but I'm in society, and maybe I could go back to my people. No, I can't go back to my, my own people, maybe even my own family. You'd be rejected and despised by your own family, and Jesus warned of all this. He said all this was coming. He said, whoever does not hate his father and mother is not worthy of me his own family. He's not saying to actively, proactively go and hate your family. What he's saying is that you can't love your family more than me. 
Because what if your family rejects you? What if your family despises you? And John says to, uh, on behalf of Christ, as he's writing the words of Christ to the church um, here in Smyrna, he's saying, you guys are feeling the weight of this. You guys are feeling the persecution. And here's what you need to do. Here's what Jesus told them. And it's the same thing that Jesus would tell those who are facing being ostracized by their former friends because of stances they've taken, by their stance for Christ that they've taken, maybe even in their own families, or maybe in social circles. Here's the encouragement of Jesus Christ to you. Live like eternity matters in the face of trials. Because Jesus himself told them, you don't have to be afraid of the second death. That's what he said here. He said, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So he's not spiritually dead, he's spiritually alive. So death is not the end for him, he's, he's now alive. So he's, he's living out the words of Jesus when he said, don't fear what man can do unto you. He can kill the body, but has no say-so over the soul. You see, this is a great encouragement, but Jesus also let him know, I know it's been tough, you guys think you're poor, but actually, this is what Jesus says in verse nine, I know your tribulation and poverty, but you're actually rich. You've understood what true riches, is, true riches are. You are those who have stumbled on the treasure in the field. You're those who have found the pearl of great price. You're those who have, who have valued and delighted in Christ and who he is and what he's done. And you're valuing that above all else, even in the face of persecution and being kicked out and ostracized from everything you formerly knew, everything you were formerly accepted in, because Christ has become more valuable than others' acceptance, even the acceptance of your own family and your own people and your own society. That's the encouragement to those. And, and we, we feel a little bit of that in our day and age, but not near as much as our brothers and sisters in Christ who are in countries who are actively persecuted. I'm talking about people in Syria, Iran, people in North Korea, people in communist China. We feel touches of it here in the States, and maybe even through recent things in our nation, both through coronavirus and all the rioting that maybe happened that we're experiencing in our current days there, there's a little bit more social pressure than we've experienced in a while to conform, but that's not really what this is addressing. This is addressing your stance for Jesus Christ. And when he's talking about that, he's saying, listen, don't, don't get weary in this. You're, you're going to overcome. Stay focused. Live like eternity matters. He said, be faithful even to death. That's his instruction, and I will give you the crown of life. You think you're poor because you can't go and get a job like everybody else. You think you're poor because you don't have what everybody else has. You can't do what everybody else does. He said, but actually, you're rich. You think you're poor, but you're rich. So live like eternity matters in the face of trials. Let's read about the next church. Verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. 
You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. Here in the church of Pergamum, he says, I know where you're at. I know the pressures you're dealing with. I know what you're facing because you are where Satan's throne is. And actually, there was this incredible uh, architectural feature that is actually in, in, a, in a museum in Berlin now um, that was actually uh, this huge throne that was given to the honor of the Caesar, the emperor of that day. And the Christians would refer to it as Satan's throne because they looked at the Roman emperor as the representative, the head, the horn in prophetic language of the beast, the beast being the nation. When you see that word beast in prophetic language, both in Daniel and Ezekiel and in the book of Revelation, he's talking about a nation and the horn is talking about that king. And so here you have that nation of Rome that is that beast and that beast has that horn and that beast's throne was there in Pergamum. And it was a sight to behold. You can actually look it up and go look up pictures of it. It's, it, it's grandiose. It's huge. He says, I know that that is where you dwell. So he's saying, I know the pressure's great. That's the point. He's saying, I know you're under a lot of pressure because everybody is worshiping the, uh, the, the beast. Everyone is worshiping the emperor. Everyone is aligning with the emperor. He said, I know where you dwell. He said, and yet you have held fast to my name and you haven't denied the faith. And even Antipas, who we don't know a whole lot about him other than he was a martyr and he's someone who died for either professing Christ, teaching Christ, who knows. But the case was that he said, even Antipas, my faithful witness, I know that that's where he died under this regime, under this ideology of Pergamum. And all sorts of evil was allowed and permitted in Pergamum, probably more than any of the provinces in Asia Minor because of all of the insane worship to all these false gods that were existing. So it would have been incredibly difficult to be a Christian in the middle of all of that because you are facing so much pressure to conform to what the emperor, uh, to, to emperor cult worship and all of those types of things. And he said, I know where you're at. You're where Satan's throne is. He said, and I know that you haven't denied my name, but still, he said, I have something against you. You've been faithful. You haven't denied my name, but there's something there. He said, you hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. So here he's saying, you're holding to a rebellious teaching of compromise, of both because the, this teaching of, of Balaam is that here we're, we're, we're able to kind of compromise and do both. 
We can eat meat sacrificed to idols. We can participate in the sexual immorality of our day. We can do those things and still be Christ followers because we're not denying the name of Jesus, but we're actively participating in the social norms of that day, even though you know and you're aware that those things aren't right. Even though those things are associated with Satan, you're where Satan's throne dwells. There's a stumbling block there in front of you. And he said the same type of thing that happened with the teaching of Balaam to Balak that caused the sons of Israel to stumble is the same type of teaching that you're holding on to that's causing you to compromise and stumble. He said, you're immoral. You're eating food sacrificed to idols. He said, You're, some of you are even holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. They would have just read that at least the Ephesians hate the Nicolaitans and that God hates the Nicolaitans. They would have seen that. And so God says, repent. If not, I'm going to come and I'm going to war against them with the sword of my mouth. There's also references to him coming to war with the sword of his mouth later on, and we'll talk about that in the next few weeks. But he says, he who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers. I'll give him some of the hidden manna. So he's giving you a different food source, a heavenly food source. He's saying, don't be sustained. Don't allow your heart to be sustained by the food that is sacrificed to idols and participate in that. He said, I've got something. I've got something that's for me, something that is good. Remember, in the Lord's Prayer, Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What's next? Give us this day our daily bread. You're the source. You're the, you're the sustainer. He said, I'll give that to you. I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. He says, your identity, this is, this is associated with your identity. I'm going to give you a new name. Just like Ezekiel prophesied, there's going to be a new heart given. There's a new name that's going to be written. So, so don't associate. You're, you're not supposed to be identified and associated with those who practice those types of things, even though, I get it, you're in the middle of a crazy world. And I believe that the message of the Lord to them during their day and to us in our day, is that you cannot pursue both pleasing man and God. Really, this is another caving of social pressure for acceptance and to allow their heart to be drawn in to places that really their flesh wants to go. And instead of denying those things, they're celebrating those things and they're accepted. They're well thought of. And they're still not denying Jesus. So, like, I can have one foot in the world and, 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 and one foot over here with Jesus, you know. And it's kind of this, this comfortable compromise that I'm able to do this balancing act. And Jesus is saying, I have this against you, that you're living this way. And it's a stumbling block. It's not about you giving and caving into those pressures so that others will accept you. It's not about pleasing man. It's about serving and pleasing the one true God and aligning with him even when you're facing great pressure. Let's read about the next church. Verse 18, to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and your faith, your service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess 
and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and the heart. And I will give each one of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to say that I do not lay on you this any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And when earthen pots are broken into pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And he's talking a lot about temptation here in this because there's a seductress, this woman called Jezebel. And as we talked about in Kings, the woman Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, was an evil, evil woman that is associated several times throughout prophetic literature in Scripture where she's associated with this worldly system of rebellion and intimidation. And the world operates off of this principle, but saying that Jezebel is making promises of safety, of security, of, of, of enjoyment, of fulfillment, and seducing not the world, but the saints. And the thing that Jesus had against the church in Thyatira was that Jezebel was being tolerated, that she was being welcomed. She, you see, even the Ephesians were calling out the false prophets, and this Jezebel, or this person operating under the spirit of Jezebel, whether it was one person or a group of people, we don't know, was being tolerated by the church. They were actively open to the message that they were proclaiming, and it was seducing a lot of people away from worshiping and aligning with Christ, much like the Galatians when the Apostle Paul chastised the Galatians and called them foolish. You guys are foolish. Why are you, why are you uh, talking about another gospel as if there were another gospel? What are you doing? Why, why have you been so easily tricked and deceived? It's that same type of spirit that is actually rebellious towards God. It is rooted in the spirit of Antichrist. It is rooted in self-rule. It is rooted in uh, idolatry, and it's pulling the saints away, and it's seductive because she, she entraps them and snares them with sexual immorality, which you need to understand, the sexual tone of that day was incredibly more egregious and worse than anything that we could imagine in our day and age because they were a hyper-sexualized culture that used sexual intercourse as an act of worship to deity. So there were temple prostitutes, hundreds of temple prostitutes. And one of the ways you would go worship the deity would be to go sleep with a prostitute. Even in the gymnasiums of their day, they would go work out, and the Romans, they glorified the human body and thought it was a beautiful thing because we can see that in a lot of their works of art and things like that. So they often did things in the nude. And in the gymnasium, where they would train for Olympic Games or for uh, gladiator games or whatever the case would be, the athletes would train in the nude. When they were done training, they would go to the baths and then they would all end up having this huge drunken orgy. It was a regular practice, and it was something that was despicable, but they considered it 
a good thing, not just because it was pleasure for their flesh, but because they looked at it as worship to the deity. So they looked at that act as worship. It was very much intersected and associated with worship. And here you have the idea of, meeting, of eating meat sacrifice to idols, and you have the idea of sexual immorality coming in, and, 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 and I want to be a part of that. That looks fun. Uh, um, that, that, that sounds interesting. Now, to you and I, that may not sound interesting, but we're not living in the culture of that day to where it was a social norm and to where maybe one would be seduced or enticed. And you're trying to figure out here as a Christian how to go, okay, I'm following Jesus. Maybe if I just like don't deny his name, maybe if I do this and do that, then I can go over here and participate. And Jezebel's preaching that type of message and you're listening you're tolerating. You're not rejecting that message. You're listening to it because that message is kind of pulling you in. You kind of, you kind of like some of those things that she's saying because she's making a lot of sense to you. It's the same thing in our world today when people try to justify their sin, justify their temptations, when they're being seduced. Oh, you can be a Christ follower and do this because everyone's accepting it. No, everyone's tolerating it. No one's standing up for it. You're tolerating the sexual immorality. It's okay if you, you, you can just live together, sleep together. It's fine. It's not a big deal. You don't have to be married. And, 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 and then people go and use the Bible to try to justify it. Or you can enter into this homosexual union and sexual relationship. Even, I know the Bible says this, but the, we explain it away. And that's that prophetess Jezebel. Or it's okay. Everyone looks at porn. It's not a big deal. I mean, it's everywhere anyways, and at least I'm not out there murdering someone. I'm not hurting anybody. And we think all these things are okay. And it's just tolerating instead of saying, no, this is, this, God's very clear when it comes to human sexuality. And God is very clear when it comes to, to idolatry and, and personal gratification of pleasing yourself and pursuing that through sexual uh, uh, relationships. God has made it pure. Remember, everything God has made, Satan has a counterfeit for. And God's way is so much better. And he's saying, and then Jezebel's saying, well, yeah, I know, but look at what else everyone else is doing. Isn't, doesn't this look fun? Isn't this great? Don't you desire to do this? Why reject your desires? Those desires are there. You're, and we think our desires are what should lead us. And, and they were buying into the same type of stuff. The church in Thyatira was listening to somebody who was helping them justify things that they were being tempted to do. We, you can jump on the internet and find anybody, any blogger, any YouTuber, unfortunately, some people who call themselves pastors, who are tolerated because they are propagating a message of finding new ways to justify human temptations and sin. Folks, that's not of God. He said, don't tolerate that. And so I think the message to us today is don't tolerate temptation, run from it. Don't tolerate, don't try to justify it. Don't find a new way to find something that God is trying to get us to stay away from that causes compromise and causes us to have a form of godliness, but no power, no authenticity, no, no real presence of God. What, what, what did Jesus say? He said, he said, if you don't fix this, if you don't repent from this, there's going to be a lot of bad things that happen as a result in your church. He said, I'm going to remove my lampstand. 
I'm going to take the lampstand away. What was the lampstand? It was the seal of authenticity that you were a church of Jesus Christ. He explains what the lampstands are in the first chapter of the book of Revelation. He said, the lampstand is actually the church, and you guys can still gather together. You can still be teaching and twisting scripture, but you won't have the lampstand anymore. You won't be considered a church. You won't be considered authentic. This is dangerous. So he said, repent, <laughs> run from this temptation, not run to it, not try to tolerate it, not try to justify it. Don't tolerate temptation. Run from it. Chapter 3, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who, was this, who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Remember, seven is complete, whole. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I'm going to come like a thief in the night, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. Before I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He talks about this idea of you guys look alive. You've got a form of godliness, as Paul writes to Timothy, but there's no power there. You've got a form. You, you look like a church. You sing songs like a church. You, you do good things like what churches do, but you're dead. You are dead. There's no life to you at all. And he said, you guys need to wake up, because if you don't wake up, I'm going to come like a thief in the night, and, and I'm going to make war against you. You're, you're, you're missing the point. He said, I'm going to come like a thief in the night, and you're going to miss out. And you're going to have to experience some things that are going to be devastating. You see, he told them that I'll never, there are a few of you who have held on. There's a few legit Christ followers in the midst of you. Everyone else has taken the mark. Everyone else has aligned. Everyone else has bowed their knee to Caesar or tried to compromise or whatever the case may be. But you see here that he said, I'm not going to blot your name out. Because in that day, when they had those books where they kept the census of the Jews who were living amongst the people in the Roman Empire, they had a book to let you know who was legit. And if you weren't associated with them and you were ostracized, kicked out, then your name was blotted out. So for fear of not having their name blotted out, they would just compromise. They would just do what everyone else was doing and, and it caused them to die. It was a slow death. They were once alive and now they're dying because they're more concerned about their name being in the registry so that they could be accepted by man than their name being blotted out. And so could you imagine the weight and significance and encouragement to those few who had been found faithful when Jesus Christ himself says, I'm not going to blot your name out of my book, the more important book that's more important than the registry there that exists in the synagogue that your name's written on. I'm not going to blot out your book. I'm not going to shut the door in your face. 
He says, I open a door that no man can shut. I'm not going to lock you out. I'm not going to, no, my, my door is open and no man has the power to shut it. No man has the power to blot your name out of my book. He said right here to those few who had not soiled their garments, who were conquering over this idea of compromise and submitting to the rule of man. He said, I will never blot his name out of the book of life and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He says, if he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying. Are you getting this? He's saying, wake up. And I believe to us in our day and to them in their day as well that this message of Christ is to wake up to the urgency of eternity. We have a value here at Word of Grace that we quote regularly that we live in light of eternity and we, call, we say yes to greater things because we're called to live in light of eternity. And the reason we say that is because there are lesser things we could say yes to. Lesser things like being accepted by man, by making others happy, by compromising, by living to please ourselves. All those are lesser things. But we say yes to greater things because we're called to live in light of eternity. We want to wake up. We live in this culture where everyone wants to talk about being woke, right? I'm woke. What that means is that I see what everyone else doesn't see. I'm on the inside. I'm a part of the crowd that's woke. I'm part of the crowd that gets it. You know the it that everyone's trying to get? If you're woke, you get it, right? And that's kind of this idea of I'm in. I'm in the group, and I'm not excluded. I'm not a part of those foolish people. They don't get it. I see people all the time arguing with each other on social media. You don't get it. You don't get it. You're not woke. These people who think that they're woke, these people who think they get it, he said, man, you think you're alive. You think you're woke, but you're dead. You're actually dead. You think you're on the inside because you see all these things that you say are so important, but you don't get it because you're missing out on what? You're missing out on eternity. You're missing out on the greater thing. The thing that we talked about last week, staying true to the purpose of the church, to sharing the gospel with people, to making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, going out and proclaiming the good news of Jesus. You're missing that part because you're distracted by good things or you're tempted by Jezebel or you're stumbling over here or you're compromising here. And he's, he's saying, listen, wake up. Be truly awake. Be truly alive. And the only way to be truly awake and truly alive is to be seeing with new eyes. God, open the eyes of our understanding to see clearly. Let him who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. What is he saying? He's saying, wake up. Value what God values. Follow the path that he set before you. Be about the Father's business. Be an ambassador of Christ. Be fellowshipping with the body and edifying and encouraging the body of Christ. Wake up to the urgency of eternity. Let's read about the next church, verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David. That means really the authority of the Jewish people, the, 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 who is, who is the, the one who really has that key to uh, have that authority. That key represents authority there over the um, Israeli people. Who opens the, wor the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. 
I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, but yet you've kept my word and you've not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan. That's what he calls the Jews in that day who locked the door on them, blotted their name out, who rejected Christ. He calls them the synagogue of Satan. That synagogue you're trying to go in to find acceptance, he said, don't worry about their shut door. I've opened a door no one can shut. Verse 9, who say that they're Jews and they're not? Who say they're a part of the family of God, but they're really not? He said, they lie, and behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial. That is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write my name on him, the name of God, and the name of the city of my God, and the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. He's encouraging this church who is suffering rejection. They're suffering rejection of their own people. They're suffering rejection from wanting to be accepted in the synagogue, but he says, don't worry about those guys. They're of the synagogue of Satan. They say they're of the family of God, but don't worry, I have the key of David. Don't worry, I'm really the one in authority here. Not them, they're not the authority, because the Jews, they would claim to have the key of David because they have the inheritance that traces back to Abraham and the covenant, and they would claim to be the keepers of the key of David, and Jesus said, no, I have the key of David, actually. Actually, I'm, I'm bigger than that. This would have been a great comfort to those who are hearing this message, to continue to stay focused and continue to trust in Jesus Christ. Because in this world, we will suffer rejection. But suffering rejection with Christ leads to acceptance from Christ. Suffering that rejection with Christ is part of that because Jesus was despised by his own countrymen. Jesus was, was rejected by his own countrymen. Jesus was crucified by his own people, those who were supposed to be a part of his own nationality, those who were supposed to be the ones who had kept the law and, and, and been the descendants of Abraham and all of these things that were supposed to be pointing, the keepers of the words of the prophets and the interpreters of those prophecies that they were supposed to see. Here's the Messiah, but yet they despised him, they rejected him, and even that itself was prophesied as well. And then Paul tells us that we have to suffer with Christ. It is part of our honor to suffer with Him. That's why Paul rejoiced in tribulation and suffering, because he thought, wow, I'm being counted worthy to suffer with Christ. So when he was rejected by men, when he was despised by his own kin, his own family, he thought, I am suffering with Christ. Thank you, Jesus, that I'm counted worthy to be able to suffer alongside Christ because suffering with Christ, suffering rejection from the approval of man or the acceptance of man with Christ, guess what? Jesus said here to the church in Philadelphia, you're accepted by Christ. He's got the key. He's opened the door that no man can shut. Let's read about this last church today. Verse 14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen 
the, true, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich and I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may be clothed from the shame of your nakedness and it may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In the region of Laodicea, they didn't have natural springs or a source of water, so they had to pipe in water via aqueducts from the neighboring towns of Heropolis and Colossae. Colossae was known for its rich, cool, refreshing waters that would come down from the melting of the mountain and the snow, and they were cool and refreshing, and they were well known for this fact. And then over in Hierapolis, they were known for their incredible mineral baths and their healing hot springs. And those two aqueducts met and converged right at Laodicea, and you can actually even look at some of the pipes from the aqueducts if you want to Google it and check it out. There's tons of sediment built up in there because along the way, not only would the cold water begin to, begin to kind of warm up a little bit as it got to this neutral region, not only would the hot water from Heropolis begin to kind of cool off as well, then these two converge, but they would begin to pick up minerals along the way, and the, you can see the mineral deposits built up in some of these aqueducts that still remain in Laodicea. And by the time it reached there, it was disgusting. It was a heavy, heavy, mineral-tasting, lukewarm water that was detestable. And they had tons of water problems there in Laodicea. And it really wasn't good for drinking, and it would often make people sick. And so Jesus likens the spiritual condition of the church in Laodicea to their water problem. He uses that as prophetic imagery to help them see how he feels about them. He's not saying that hot is better than cold, so get that idea out of your head. If you've heard sermons about be passionate on fire for Jesus, don't be cold because he'd rather you be on fire for him or just cold and not caring. That's not what that means. The cold was good, the hot was good, the lukewarm was bad. And he's saying this is disgusting. Just like, you know, when you were sick, that word spew out of your mouth or spit out of your mouth in the Greek is actually the word vomit. Like, you make me so sick, I want to vomit. I wouldn't want to hear that message from Jesus. I don't know about you. That your spiritual condition and your church, the way I feel about it makes me want to throw up. I, I wouldn't want to hear that from Jesus. But he said, that's where you've allowed yourself to get to. You see, in AD 17, there was a great earthquake that happened in the region of Laodicea. It caused a lot of problems. Um, Josephus Flavius writes about this, and so do other historians. Tacitus writes about this. There are a few others that write about this great earthquake that happened in AD 17 in Laodicea. But Laodicea was extremely wealthy. 
They were known for their eye salve that they sold, and it was used for medicinal purposes. They had a great hospital facility there in Laodicea, and they were known for uh, producing all sorts of wonderful goods and things, and they were known for their gold stores and their treasuries. This was a wealthy, wealthy community. And when the earthquake happened, humanitarian aid kicked in from neighboring Roman provinces. And they said, hey, we're so sorry this happened to you guys. We're going to send help. Kind of like we would send out the Red Cross to in our day or some humanitarian aid, Samaritan's Purse or something like that. If you remember back when there was like a big major earthquake that happened in Haiti, people came from all over the world to try to help that country to be able to recover. It was kind of the same type of idea. Everyone's trying to come and help them, but it's written in the history books in AD 17 after this earthquake that Laodicea said, we've got enough to take care of ourselves. We don't need your aid. Thanks, but no thanks. And Jesus uses that terrible, tragic event that they experienced to also illustrate to them, you say you're rich and you have need of nothing. But I'm telling you, you're poor. To tell a Laodicean that they were poor would be like telling someone that lives in Beverly Hills they're poor. They would scoff at you. <laughs> what do you mean I'm poor? <laughs> Don't you know where I live? That would tell some, that'd be like telling someone who was buying the most expensive clothes on Rodeo Drive you're poor. I'm not poor. Look at all the money I have. And that would be the, the, how the Laodiceans would have felt. That would have been an insult to them. They were a wealthy group of people. You're calling me poor? We rebuilt our city ourselves. We didn't even need Rome's help. We didn't need their handouts. We built it ourselves. He said, oh, I know, but you're poor and actually, I know you've got this really awesome eye salve that a lot of you have made a ton of money off of, but actually, you're all blind too. What? We're not blind. We're the people that are known for helping people who have eye issues. No, you're, you're also miserable. No, we're not. We're so happy because we're wealthy, you know, and you're naked. Wow. You want to talk about somebody getting offended over the words of Jesus, this church would have gotten deeply offended because he's calling them out on everything they had placed their security in. And now you're likening me to this water? You're likening me to the condition of our water? And you're saying you want to vomit me out? What are you talking about? And then he tells them what they really need. He said, you need to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can be rich. True riches come from knowing Christ. White garments, so you can be clothed in righteousness and the shame of your nakedness can be covered and not seen. And salve from me, that's better than your salve, to anoint your eyes with so you can see. I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. I'm here offering you all these things. He's saying to the homeless person, I I've got a million dollars in a bag that'll change your life right here. I'm, I'm knocking, I'm, I'm, I'm handing you the answer to what you need, but you think you're fine just like you are and you're rejecting it. Open the door. I'm trying to change your life. I'm trying to change the situation because you think you're okay and you're not okay because you're relying on yourself. And I think that the message to us from the church of Laodicea is that self-reliance is detestable to God. When we are reliant upon self as a church, as Christians... We are detestable to God. God does not want His church to be self-reliant. We are to be totally dependent on Christ, not on ourselves. That's why prayer is so key. 
because it deepens our dependence on God. That's why fellowship is so important, because we need one another. I've tried to get people to come to church before. I've, I've talked to people, even in our community here in Sheboygan Falls, trying to invite them to church. I remember talking to one lady in particular, and I was trying to get her to come and be a part of something, and she said, I don't need church. I'm a good enough person without it. You're missing the point. She's saying, I, I don't need it. I don't need to be fellowshipping with other believers. I don't need to put my hope and trust in God. I'm doing okay on my own. And now the world takes that position, sure. We know that, but this was the church taking that position. Yikes. When the church begins to be self-reliant, we've got this figured out to where we don't even need God. We're smart enough business people. We're smart enough and creative enough. We've got all the resources we need. We can just do this. Let's just make it happen. Because let's figure it all out. Because we're, we're smart enough. And he's saying, no, mm -mm. it's my church. And I'm not going to let you become the self-reliant group and still be approved and accepted by me. My lampstand is going to be removed. You're, you're sick. You're making me sick. Self-reliance is detestable to God. So as we look at these seven churches, there's different things that are relevant to us today, but I hope that it helps you to see what really matters to the Lord, because the gospel of Jesus Christ is the anchor in the trials and the temptations that we face. And the same answer for these seven churches is the same answer for us today. It's the exact same answer, to repent and to turn and be faithful. Those were the two messages that he gave to almost every one of those churches. He either told them, keep being faithful, or he told them, repent and turn and be faithful. Repent, that means to turn to live in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. No matter what season the church may be in, no matter how popular or it may be or may not be to be a Christ, a Christ follower, or how much fun that it looks like you might be missing out on, or how alone you may feel, or how exhausted you are from feeling rejected from your family or from your peers, no matter how good or smart you think you are, you never stop needing Jesus. Repent and return to your first love. Return to your real love, the God kind of love. Repent and remember that everything you have faced and are facing, Jesus faced first. Everything you're being tempted with, Jesus was tempted first. Everything you may be suffering right now, suffer well as unto the Lord, counting your suffering as suffering with Christ. You see, the Lamb of God, He went before us. He took our sins. He took our place. He was faithful even to the point of death for you and for me. And no matter where we find ourselves on the cycle of the church, no matter which one of these may be most relevant to us in our day and our age, our response as we evaluate the trials and the temptations we face, the potential shaming that we face by society. Remember, they shamed him first. Remember, church, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are to stay anchored in the hope that we have in him, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That Jesus absorbed the wrath of God that was due you and I so that we could be free, so that we could be named as sons and daughters, so we could be adopted 
into the family of God. Remember when you face those things that you're not alone even when you feel alone because Jesus went first. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. The Holy Spirit is with you to comfort you even through the difficulties, even through the pressures. Remember, He is the treasure and He is worth it. And if you find yourself drifting over into some of these areas like some of these churches have, repent, acknowledge it, confess it. He's faithful. He's just. He'll forgive you of your sin. He'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Ask Him to order your steps. Dive into the Scriptures to get to know this God that you serve more and more. Surround yourself with other Christians who will help drag you away from those temptations and pull you away and, and help us to continue to sharpen each other, to edify one another, to build one another up, to spur one another on to good works, to turn our faces towards Jesus together and be found faithful, no matter the cost. So Lord, help us do this by your spirit and by your word. As we've gone through these seven churches today, as we've learned about what this word would have meant to them that you gave them and what it means to us prophetically still today, we, we can identify with some of these things. And maybe in living rooms or maybe in our bedroom watching this or wherever people may find themselves joining in today, may we be drawn to repent. May we be drawn to be counted as faithful not just by our commitments, but by our actions. As we value you, as we delight in you, as we love you, as we have confidence in you alone, Jesus. Help us to do this by your spirit and your word. In Jesus' name, amen.